We are continuing with this mini sermon series. This, this will probably be the last part, part three. I've titled this uh, little series, Church of the Golden Calf. And we've been looking at some interesting things from the book of Exodus in chapter 32 about the, uh, the idol worship of the children of Israel, how they turned their backs on God and built a, uh, a, a golden calf and worshipped it uh, in the guise of worshipping Jehovah. And we saw that their worship style was completely different than the way that God commanded them to worship him. And it had completely changed. Their singing changed, their, the way they dressed, well, they undressed to worship. And uh, everything about it was completely different. It was, it was wickedness. It was worldly. It was like the worship style of their pagan neighbors and the Egyptians where they came out of bondage. And we've been comparing that all along with uh, the condition of the modern New Testament church and how many churches, they may not claim they worship a golden uh, calf, but yet they place something that's more important to them than the worship of the Lord God, uh, Jehovah, or Jesus. And so they'll, they'll use certain things in their worship service that becomes their idol. It's more important than anything else. And if you take that away from them, they get upset. And so we're looking at that today, and I wanted to dive a little deeper into some of the things we've already covered, but uh, I believe there were some things here that God's directed me to, to to go over a little bit more and give it a better meaning and understanding uh, that we can get from this. And uh, we're going to read one verse, and then we'll, we'll pray, and we'll get right into the message. Uh, there in uh, Exodus chapter 32 and verse 19, the Bible says, And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mount. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you this morning just need your help so much. Lord, you know what we have prepared to preach this morning. Lord, we've prayed about it, meditated on it, studied it all week long, and God, we pray that you'll just help us in it, guide us, lead us, Illuminate it, and Lord, that you'll receive any glory from it. For these things we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last Sunday in part two, we looked at the results and the repercussions of the sin of the children of Israel. We saw the anger of Moses that came out. We saw what he did, the steps he took um, to tear that idol apart and destroy it. And we're going to look at that a little closer this morning here in verse 19. Uh, we know that God had already told Moses exactly what he was going to see when he went back down off that mountain and into the camp. Uh, he told him that they had they'd committed an abomination. They were worshiping false idols. They built a golden calf. And, and, uh, but I don't believe Moses fully quite comprehended exactly how bad it was down there until he saw it with his own two eyes. And when he witnessed exactly what was happening there, it literally tore him apart. Now, the Bible tells us that Moses was the, the meekest man on all the earth. It's what it says in Numbers 12 and 3. The Bible says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. That's a lot. That's saying quite a bit about Moses. Very, the most meekest man on all the face of the earth. That's, <laughs> that's something else. But we also remember that Moses had a temper. We see many things in Moses' life where his anger comes out. Sometimes it's righteous anger, such as the case that we're talking about this morning. Sometimes it's not. It's sinful anger. And we're going to look at that just a little bit. But the definition, the very definition of the, of the word uh, meek means a mild temper, soft, gentle, not easily provoked or irritated, 
yielding, giving to forbearance under injuries. And so we're told numerous times in the Bible that not only is Moses meek, but so is the Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us over and over and over that he's meek. He's meek and lowly. Matthew 11 and 28, Jesus from his own mouth says this, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we see that the Moses uh, has some of the attributes of the Lord Jesus. He is a type of Christ, by the way. I've not talked about types in a long time. I tried to not not do that as much. I know I was getting really uh, every time I preached talking about it, but Moses is a type of Christ. Christ is an interceder, an intercessor. Uh, he intercedes between us and God. Uh, that man, Christ Jesus, he sits on the right hand of, of the Father, makes intercession for you and I. That's what the Bible says. And so, but don't make any mistake thinking that being meek means that you're weak. It's the complete opposite. Meekness is a sign of strength. Because it takes a lot of strength to remain meek and lowly. And uh, I can tell you right now, I will never be labeled as meek. Uh, I, that's, my, that's how I was made. I was made not very meek. I'll just tell you that right now. But being meek doesn't mean that you can't be angry as either. Uh, Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But... Meekness also um, has, uh, you can be meek and still have anger, righteous anger. And this anger will derive from something that you know completely goes against God's word or what God teaches, what the Lord Jesus gives as an example. Uh, Psalms 147.6, the Bible says, The Lord lifteth up the meek, he casteth the wicked down to the ground. But there is nothing sinful about a righteous anger. And we're looking at the righteous anger of Moses here in our text in Exodus. And we see the Lord Jesus' righteous anger come up many times. Probably one of the most memorable ones is when he went into that temple and found them there buying and selling there in the temple. The Bible says this in the Gospel of John, John 2, 13 through 16. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And he said to them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. This is righteous anger from the Lord Jesus. It's not sinful anger. Everything that he did there was, was rightfully so. Uh, this goes against everything that God wanted in his house and what he instructed also that could be in his house. He, these things were not allowed there. And so Jesus' righteous anger, it, it came up, and you see what he did. He turned over the tables. He, he ran them out. He took a, a cord, a scourge of small cords, and, boy, he just went, went after them. <laughs> so, look, th this is the same type of righteous anger that Moses is having here and the actions that he took by breaking the tablets of stone. And of course, then after that, grinding down the, the, the golden calf and liquefying and, and uh, or liquefying it, then grinding it down and making it into powder and throwing it on the, on the water. But there is also a sinful anger. Moses exhibited sinful anger 
several times that we read about in the Bible. Uh, even though he was the meekest man on earth, he had problems with this. And it was his sinful anger that God also uh, caused him to not be able to go into the promised land. If you remember, Moses struck the rock twice uh, to make water come out of it. And um, because of that, God only let Moses see the promised land from up on top of the mountain. And then he took Moses' life. And so uh, there are repercussions for sinful anger, as we see in the life of Moses. Now, as we said in the last two messages, this breaking of the, of the stone tablets, uh, this is a sign of how the, the nation of Israel had broken God's commandments. This was a visible, physical sign as Moses takes these things and throws them down. The Bible says he did it in front of them. And he throws them down in front of them so they all witness it. These are God's words being shattered, being broken. And they would look at that and know for certain. I mean, that was God's own finger that wrote those tablets. And they could look at that and say, oh my, what have we done? We have broken God's commandments. Now, God's commandments were given to the children of Israel for a blessing. These were blessings God gave them to be able to follow the law and, and, and everything. And yet they, they broke it. And by the way, they had been given all these laws. The first time Moses went up there and he came back down and he brought the Ten Commandments and he gave them all those laws and they said, we will abide by these. You know, we will not defy the Lord. We will not bow down to other gods. And, and you know, he, the Lord God is our God. All these things. in only in a short amount of time, what, five, five weeks or so, they've already turned their back on all that and broken the commandments. But verse 20 back in Exodus uh, 32 says, And he took the calf which they had made and burned it in the fire and ground it to powder and strawed it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. Now, in the last two messages I preached out of this, I made mention that I did not believe that the idol was a solid gold. It, it wasn't complete gold inside and out. You know, a solid piece of, of gold. And uh, there were some questions on that. Uh, my mother actually asked me, you know, where do you come up with that? How, why do you say that? What makes you think that? And so I, I got to studying deeper into that. And, and I knew in my mind what I was thinking, but I want to... To describe it to you so that you understand why did I say that? Uh, this 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 calf that Aaron constructed, uh, I, I mentioned that it possibly could have been a wood construction. He made it in the form of a calf and then poured the molten gold over it to plate it. Now this was a, um, a common thing in that day. Uh, they would plate things that way. They would make it first out of wood and then they'd pour it over it and plate it. They, they used more than gold. They used bronze and silver and, and different types of metals. Uh, but uh, in the Bible, we read about a graven image and we read about a molten image. Two different things, but the same. They're, they're, they're both idols. They're both images. They're both wrong. They're both forbidden, but they're made in, in different ways. Uh, we read this in Deuteronomy 27 and 15. The Bible says, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image, an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and putteth it in a secret place, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. And so these, again, are laws that were given to the children of Israel. Now, God says this, any graven image, any molten image, anybody that crafts them, anything, he said, this is an abomination. And the people said, that's right, we agree with that. We think so too. We'd never do that. Well, uh, a graven image is usually made from wood, stone, metal, mud, or even dried feces. Uh, 
that that's it's, it's historical that we know this. Uh, these pagan cultures, they would use anything they'd get their hands on to form it in the shape of some idol. Now, whether it be in the shape of a god, an animal, a planet, uh, whatever it could be, they carve it. The word graven actually means to carve. And so typically a graven image is designed to represent a god of some type. And so they'll use that, that graven thing, that carved thing, in their worship style and worship their god through it. It could be, like I said, an image of a person, animal, object, anything that's worshipped. All pagan cultures have these graven images, whether it be a Buddha. Now, and, and by the way, this, the Buddhas have gotten really popular, especially here in the United States. You see a lot of these little Buddha statues sitting around in, in uh, people's homes and in businesses and everything else. If you watch any amount of television, if you look in the background, you're going to find little Buddhas situated in certain places. This is for a reason. Uh, and listen, this, this is a false idol. It could be a Buddha. It could be the image of a Pharaoh, an image of Baal, an Asherah pole. All these things are representations, or we call today avatars. <laughs> uh, they're imitations or representations of something, and these are all considered idols. Now, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 31, Jacob had been there, and he, he, he got his wives, Leah and Rachel. He wanted Rachel, but he got Leah first, and then Rachel. And he had all these children. And uh, so he's wanting to, to flee from Laban and leave there and go back to his homeland. Well, before he actually flees, his wife, Rachel, his favorite, she goes into her father's home and steals these images. The Bible calls them images, and it also calls them gods. So these were small types of graven images of some type. We don't know what they look like, what they were made out of, or whatever. But these were used by the family to worship their pagan gods. Rachel, uh, she was, uh, it's hard to say from the Bible exactly why she did this. If it was just like a keepsake, a memory, something she held on to. Maybe she was still worshiping her pagan gods and the God of uh, Lord God Jehovah. Whatever reason she wanted these idols, maybe she thought it was going to bring her good luck, or, or you know, if this didn't work out, we'll just pull out the idols and we'll worship them. These graven images, but she took these images or gods, and uh, with her. If you remember, she ended up having to hide them in the trunk and and pretend that she was sick. And her father came in to search the tent, and he didn't look in it, and and uh, she got by with it. But these, because she stole those graven images, it brought them great danger. Um, Laban and his men were ready to kill people over this. And so this was, uh, this was no small matter. And so all pagan cultures have some type of graven image. You can go into the, into the jungles, uh, Amazon jungle, where nobody's ever been. If you get to one of those tribes or the African tribes in the jungles and things where modern men are not there, they've got graven images they're worshiping. And so it's built into men to desire to worship some kind of God, and they want some object in front of them to do it with. Now, we've talked about graven images. Now, the Bible mentions molten images, which is what Aaron is built. A molten image is made by pouring molten metal, liquefied metal. It can be gold, silver, iron, bronze, whatever it may be, and it's, it's usually poured into a mold. They'll, they'll construct a mold of some kind and pour it in it. This mold is shaped the way they want the thing to be shaped. Uh, it can be two molds, and they, they pour, pour the molten metal into it and then put those molds together, and the mold is hollow inside. 
Or it could be a, a complete mold. It could be with just enough room that they could pour it in there and then crack open the case and, and have the, a solid figure here. However, most molten images were hollow in the inside or poured over a wooden construction of some type. Now, uh, the Bible says in Leviticus 19 and 4, Turn you not unto idols, nor make to yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. And we can't say for certain how Aaron made the golden calf, the molten image. The liquid gold could have been poured over a structure he built. Uh, it could have been poured into pre-made molds like we just talked about. We, we don't know how large it was. The Bible doesn't give us dimensions of it. Uh, we do know that uh, um, archaeology has went over and dug in some of these, these ancient sites, and they found these types of, of uh, idols 16 feet tall. It was common, uh, very large. Some of them may have been smaller. We don't know the size uh, that they were. Uh, the Ammonites, they worshipped uh, uh, Moloch, also called Molech. Uh, and uh, there's another name, the Mil Milcom. Uh, all three of these names are, are, are referring to the same God. Well, in their worship style, they created molten images of Moloch. And Moloch was in the image of a large man with a, a, a bull's head with horns. And uh, you've probably seen those, those figures. It's usually like this with those horns and everything. And it's made out of bronze and it was hollow inside. And they would build a fire beneath it, and as the smoke would come up through the hollow image and come out the nose of the bull and make it look like it was alive. And that's the type of things here that these children of Israel are imitating their pagan neighbors with Ammonites right there, their neighbors. And so, uh, and also the children of Israel also had a problem later on. It wasn't at this time, but later on when they're living among these people, they start participating in that pagan worship. Remember what happened? 2 Kings 17 and 17. The Bible says, And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire and use divination and enchantments and sold themselves to, to do evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah only. Now this was several hundred years after what we're studying about today. But idol worship and pagan uh, idols were always a stumbling block for the children of Israel, always. And uh, but these these uh, this idol that Aaron made, like I said, we we can't say for certain uh, the size of it or exactly how it was constructed. But uh, and when we study the Bible, sometimes our imagination goes wild, and we have certain preconceived notions of what things look like. Uh, for example, most people today have a preconceived notion that Jesus looks like these pictures that you see today that's drawn by these artists. It's got the long hair, looks kind of like a hippie, and you know, real pretty, and all this stuff, kind of feminine looking. I can guarantee you that's not what Jesus looks like. But I was raised up seeing these, these depictions or idols of this, graven images of, of, of a man they called to be Jesus, and now most people think that's what he looks like. People said they had an apparition and, and there appeared to them, Jesus was right there. And it always looks like that painting that everybody thinks is Jesus. That's not what Jesus looks like. But that's what our preconceived notion imagines. So when we think of Jesus, that's the first thing that our mind goes to. And there's certain things like this, the, the golden uh, calf. Now, see, I was raised up around cows. And when I think of a calf, I think of a very small cow. Uh, one that just came out, you know, and it's little and it's going around, you know, it's a, 
<laughs> real little animal. And so I've always imagined the golden calf being a small calf there, but it was actually probably a bull that they did. The, the, the word calf is really indicating uh, a, an animal of that type of, of, of bovine. And so it could be a calf, it could be a bull, it could be a, an oxen, and some type of, of big animal like that. And so I've always imagined it in my mind as being kind of a smaller idol. And I always think about, well, if they just broke off earrings and melted them down, you know, how much could that make? And we don't know what kind of earrings these things were. You know, I, I always think about a little bitty hoop. But they might have been big old long gold leaves. We don't know. And so one of the problems is we do have preconceived notions about things. And so in our mind, we see it one way, but we fail to look at what the Bible actually says. Now, here in the case of Aaron and the golden calf, the Bible does not say he constructed it with this way. He built it out of wood and carved it like it does say that he crafted it, that he did it. But we can't say this for sure about what the Bible says. Listen, Exodus 32, 2 through 4 tells us about it. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives and of your sons and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it up a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And so we, all the Bible tells us is what's right here. He fashioned it with a graving tool and made it a golden, molten calf. That's all we know. So to say anything further, we can't dogmatically state how he did it. But these are just things that we think about. You know, we, we wonder about such things. And so I hope that kind of clears up the reason I've been saying that I don't think it was a solid um, uh, idol. Because molten, usually you pour it over a form. Now, look back at verse 20 again, back in Exodus 32 and verse 20. And I want to look at uh, another thing here about what Moses did with this idol. It says, And he took the calf which they had made and burned it in the fire and ground it to powder and strawed it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. Now, we've already talked about how Moses had, had melted down the golden calf and uh, how he, you know, if it was wooden underneath, then it would have burned off that wood and nothing would be left but the gold. Gold stands up to everything else. And all the other things is, is, is dross and it, and it separates. And so when you, you apply the, the great heat temperatures to the gold and it melts down into uh, this molten uh, liquid, it's kind of like a lava when you think about lava coming out of, a, out of a volcano. And so he would have, after he had melted it, he probably would have poured it out into thinner layers of some type to be able to work with it. I mean, you wouldn't want a, a solid big old chunk of, of gold. You know, you'd want something that you could work with, and, and he's, his plan is to grind it down, so he wants it as thin as he can so he can do the grinding. Now, most likely he would have poured it out on a flat surface, maybe a, a flat rock, and, and made thin plates out of it, and then it would have been easier to grind into powder. Now, how did he grind it into powder? The Bible doesn't say how he did it. It just says that he ground it. And so there's really only a couple of, of explanations of how this could have been. I mentioned already how he could have used some device like a, a file, like we think of a file, uh, a piece of metal or a rasp or something that uh, was able to, where he could take that thin gold and, and rub it on it until it grinds it down into you know, shavings or powder like that. Or it could have been like how 
you would do wheat or barley or, or medicine. Uh, they use a mortar and a pedestal to grind these. And so they, they have the bowl, the mortar, and they have the pedestal, and they, they take and put it in there, and they take and they, they grind it like this. You know, they pound on it and, and, and everything and mash it. It could have been that way. The gold might have been brittle enough to be able to do that if it was thinned out enough. And uh, Or he could have used rocks. He could have laid a rock and took another rock and beat on it, beat on it, beat on it until it ground down to the powder. So we don't know. But we do know that the Bible says he ground it down to powder. To powder. And then when I think about it, I think of maybe like Kool-Aid powder. You know? You take a, a pack of Kool-Aid, hadn't drank that in years, but take a pack of Kool-Aid and it's like powder. Uh, and so that's what I'm imagining when he does that. That's my preconceived conception here of what it is or, or notion of what it could be. And then he takes it and scatters it into the brook and, and the water where they get their drinking water. And so he mixes it into the water. And then the Bible says, and made the, the children of Israel drink of it. Made them drink of it. It's what the Bible says. I was studying this from a commentary. I don't remember who it was. And he was saying, he said something to this effect. That he didn't believe that Moses actually physically forced them to drink the water. That those that were guilty just naturally did it. <laughs> That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, and made the children of Israel drink it. So I don't know if he... If he had men stand there and he says, you get everybody that bowed down to this island, you make them drink out of that brook, or, or what he did. Or we grab them by the back of the neck and cram their heads down in that water and said, you drink of it. I don't know what, how it happened. But uh, they were forced, literally forced, to drink their own sin. This is a, a sign of drinking their own sin. And so by making them drink, it, drink this, there's, there's several reasons. First of all, to recognize they're having to drink their own sin. Secondly, it would show them how weak their false god was. If this was a real god, this would never have happened. <laughs> it would also pass through their digestive system and come back out in the form of waste, feces. And so Moses could look at them and say, now, what do you think about your god? Oh, he was so great before, now what do you think about him there in a big pile of dung? It would also render their gold useless and they would not be able to use it for monetary gain. They couldn't later say, hey, let's go break up the golden calf and sell it. <laughs> no, he's completely destroyed it, no longer to be able to be used to show how worthless, useless, ridiculous it was for them to think this was actually a god. And by the way, did you notice when they built it, they said, these be our gods? Plural? All right, so the way that that's, keeps saying that, these be thy gods, they did this. They brought us up. They did this. It's an indication, I believe, of the Trinity. I believe they're attributing this golden calf as being God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, does the Bible say that? No. I'm just giving you what my personally personal thoughts are on it. Uh, so all these things are possibilities of why Moses made them to drink of it. Now, verses 21 through 25 here is again Moses speaking to Aaron, asking him why he did this, and and them talking about it, and Aaron trying to defend himself, Aaron trying to act like you know he's a he's a uh, a pawn in this, you know uh, he's it's really not his fault. They made me do it, and this calf just popped up out of the fire after I did it, you know. But uh, listen, the Bible says in Exodus twenty eight one through three. Listen to what it says here. Well, first of all, before I do this, let me preface this. 
at the same time that Moses was up on Mount Sinai communing with God, and God has given him instructions. If you look back in the previous chapters, he's given him instructions up there on how to build the, the tabernacle, the ark, uh, about the priest. And at the same time, he's telling Moses to consecrate Aaron as the priest of Israel. Aaron is building a false idol at the same time. Exodus 28, 1 through 3. And take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. So at the same time that God's instructing Moses to consecrate, which means to, to separate and, and, and anoint and, and, uh, in a holy position, uh, at the same time he's doing that, Aaron's down there giving in to the whims of the people and sinning by building a golden calf. An idol, a false idol. And so, listen, do you think God was surprised that Aaron was down there doing this? Absolutely not. God knows all. God sees all. God, he expects it. And he knows it. And so God knew what kind of man Aaron was, yet he still separated him to be a priest. Now, this ought to show us that God will choose whoever he wants, whenever he wants, to do whatever he wants to do. Uh, he has that prerogative. We don't. We don't have any say in it. God is a sovereign God. The truth is God uses people despite their weaknesses, despite their infirmities, their inefficiencies, and their flaws. I'm an example right now. I am not worthy to be able to come up and, and preach God's word, but yet he enables me. He He called me to preach God's word. It's preach his word. So that is what we're doing. All right, so... Now I want you to move on down to verse 26. We're not going to get more into verses 21 through 25. But look at verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. Now, the sons of Levi, we mentioned it last week. The sons of Levi also are called the tribe of Levi at a later time. At this point, they usually don't call them tribes. They're not called tribes, really, until they get into Canaan and they're divided up into their, into their different uh, uh, tribes. And so it is the tribe in which Moses, Aaron, and Miriam all came from, the two brothers and a sister. They all came from the tribe of Levi. They were descendants of Levi, who was the third son of Jacob and Leah. Remember Jacob's sons? Uh, the first ones came from Leah. And the third one was Levi. Uh, and so the order was Jacob, Levi, Kohath, Amram. And Amram was the father of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And so that is the, the Levite bloodline. And so the Levites were, of course, appointed as the priestly tribe, with Aaron being what we would call the high priest. We just read there in Exodus 28 where God told Moses to consecrate Aaron and his sons into the priest office. Well, all the, the descendants of Levi are going to be part of the priestly tribe. And they have not yet quite been separated to do that at this point, but they will be very soon after this event. And so uh, the Levites, being the priestly tribe, they're the ones that performed all the priestly duties, the religious activities. They sang the songs. 
they uh, conducted the services, they, they, um, they worked with the, the uh, uh, sacrifices, <coughs> excuse me, everything that involved the tabernacle worship or the worship in the congregation of the children of Israel, the, the Levites were the ones that, that ran the show, for lack of terms, better lack of terms. So um, they led the music, they carried the ark, they conducted the sacrifice. Remember, that was one of the important things. The ark, had when it had to be carried, the Levites were the ones to carry it. And if you wasn't, then there was always problems. Remember when David tried to take it and, and all the problems that happened? All right, so the Lord separated the Levites from the rest of the children of Israel, and he also had special provisions that were only for them. They were very different than all the other tribes. If you want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18, and we'll see that, these provisions that God has given uh, for just the tribe of Levi. Deuteronomy 18, 1 through 8. The Bible says, The priests, the Levites, and all the tribe of Levi shall have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire and his inheritance. Therefore shall they have no inheritance among the, the, their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance, as he has said unto them. And this shall be the priests due from the people, from them that offer a sacrifice, whether it be an ox or a sheep. And they shall give unto the priests the shoulder and the two cheeks and the maw. The first fruit also of thy corn, of thy wine, of thine oil, and the first of the fleece of thy sheep shalt thou give him. For the Lord thy God has chosen him out of all the tribes to stand the minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. And if a Levite come from any of thy gates out of all of Israel, where he sojourned, and come with all the desire of his mind unto the place which the Lord shall choose, then he shall minister in the name of the Lord his God, as all his brethren, the Levites, do, which stand there before the Lord. They shall have like portions to eat beside that which cometh of the sale of his uh, patrimony. So, once the children of Israel actually get into the land of Canaan, in the promised land, the land is divided up. It's called their inheritance. And it's divided amongst the twelve sons of, of Jacob, or Israel, as he's later called. But the Levites, we see, do not inherit the same land. In fact, they are scattered among all of the nation of Israel into 48 different cities. Now, out of the 48 cities, there's six of them that are called cities of refuge. A city of refuge is one that a man can run to if he's committed manslaughter. He goes to that city of refuge and he's protected until he's able to go on trial and be tried. If he's not in a refuge city, they put him to death. They stone him to death. Somebody just make the accusation. Two people stand up and say, yeah, I believe it. You know, stone him to death. But not in the city of refuge. They're protected in there. Uh, you can read about that in Numbers chapter 35. It tells you all the information you need to know about the cities of refuge. So the Levites were a very peculiar tribe. And they remained loyal to God, even though Aaron sinned against God when he built the the calf, and there's another problem later on with uh, Korah, the sons of Korah. We remember that, and the earth, the Lord causes the earth to open up and swallow them up, and they go down into, into hell. But uh, these Levites have remained uh, obedient to God. They didn't bow down to the false idols, obviously. And when Moses gives the the call, who's on the Lord's side? It's the Levites. They come. We're on the Lord's side. Now this is very interesting. Uh, look, look, first, let's read verses 27 and 28 back in Exodus 32. 
And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did, according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. All right, so we discussed this already last week. Uh, these men stood up. Uh, they're on the Lord's side. Moses said, you go out and you slay those people. So these people that were slain, about 3,000 men, were most likely the instigators, the chief ones that participated in it and caused it to happen. We don't know exactly. The Bible doesn't tell us. But something you need to understand about the, the tribe of Levi, they were also fierce warriors. Um, a lot of times you think about a priest as being some weak, do-gooder, you know, uh, milk toast, somebody wouldn't ever hurt, harm a fly. Uh, you see these on television shows and movies, they always had this little, you know, panty-waist priest up there. Wouldn't, wouldn't do anything. That's the total opposite of what a priest was in the Bible. Uh, a priest was usually a pretty, pretty tough guy. Um, they inherited this brutal mentality that they had from their namesake, Levi, the son of Jacob. Levi, along with his brother, back in Genesis chapter 34, uh, his, his older brother Simeon, who was the second son of Jacob and Leah, uh, first was what, Reuben, Reuben, Simeon, and uh, Levi. And so Simeon and Levi, if you remember, when Dinah, their sister, uh, was raped in Shechem. And you remember, they, they fooled all the men in Shechem and had them to circumcise themselves. So that, and they claimed that they would you know, intermix and mingle with them and they would have their daughters and they would have theirs and they'd marry together and all this. Lied to them. But caused them to, to go under the circumcision. And while they were healing and sore, Simeon and Levi invaded the city and killed all the men. Murdered them. Murdered them. Now, did these men deserve punishment for what had happened there? Certainly they did. But they went above and beyond simple revenge. They were murderous. And uh, it became a big problem. It turned out to be a brutal, murderous slaughter, and it brought a curse upon them and their descendants because of this. As Jacob was lying in his deathbed, and he was giving out his blessings and describing how all his sons were going to be in this world. Listen to what he said about Simeon and Levi. Genesis 49, 5-7. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O oh, my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly, mine honor. Be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. Cursed be their anger. For it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And so we see the, the curse that was brought upon the tribe of Levi because of the sins of their patriarch, Levi, the son of Jacob. And the scattered. This was also a, uh, a revelation or a prophecy of what was going to happen to that tribe. They were scattered in Canaan. They weren't put together in a certain land. And so it all it all came to be exactly as, as Jacob said. Now it's kind of ironic that this fierceness and cruelty that they inherited would also later become a blessing. Uh, as we're reading this morning, it led to a blessing. Look down at verse 29 of Genesis 32. 
The Bible says, For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. He's speaking to the Levites here. After they killed these 3,000 men with their swords, Moses comes in and he says, Now, you concentrate, concentrate, consecrate yourselves this day to the Lord. This is where the tribe of Levi gets separated and becomes that, that priestly tribe. Even though Aaron is, is meant to be the, the one consecrated as the priest, all the sons of Levi now are part of the priestly tribe. They're ministers. And so it's kind of ironic that their cruelty has also led to a blessing in their lives. All right. So this, I hope that all this has got a better understanding of some of the things that, that happened here and why. But finally, I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14. I meant to bring this out last time, and I forgot it. I had it all printed out and laying here under my Bible, and I forgot to look at it. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 14, this is the Apostle Paul. He's speaking to the church of Corinth, who was a very troubled church, if you will. And he's, he's giving them instruction on, on uh, how they're not to turn to idolatry. Because it's always built into men to worship an idol. And so listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's referring to the children of Israel. Remember, the Lord had a cloud by day and, a, and a, a pillar of fire by night. And so he's referring to that. And they passed through the sea. The, 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 uh, remember, Moses parted the, the sea. Verse 2, And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Interesting what he just said there. We don't have time to go in it today, but here Paul is actually referring to that rock back in those days in the Old Testament as being the rock of Christ. And so, uh, look at verse 5. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What does he mean overthrown? It wasn't by their enemies they were overthrown. It was by their own flesh, their carnality, by wickedness. They were overthrown there in the wilderness. Verse 6 is the key here. Look at it. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So Paul's saying all this stuff happened so that we would have an example of what not to do. Verse 7. Neither be you idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's referring specifically to the, the golden calf worship here. Remember what the Bible said there in Exodus 32? He said they, they ate and they drank and they rose up to play. And remember what that means. It was a, a sexual perverted um, act that they were performing here. Verse 8, Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Now this right here shows us proof that what they were doing was sexual in nature. Paul says they committed fornication on that day. Do you see that? Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and uh, 20,000. Uh, 20, and so uh, now look at verse 9. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. That's referring to 
the serpent that Moses lifted up, and they had to look at it, and uh, if they didn't, then they would they would die. They would be bitten by fiery serpents. Uh, Neither murmured you, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Verse 11, Now all these things happened unto them for in samples. That word means an example. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So Paul said all these things happen for a reason. So that we would have the example here of what not to do and what we are to do. Verse 12, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. That's important to understand. Many times when you think you're right where you need to be, you're right, you're right for a fall. Men that get up and brag and say, I would never do that. I'm walking so close to God, that could never happen to me. You better watch out, the next day they're going to fall. Verse 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the, the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. So all these things Paul is is teaching to the church of Corinth directly related to what happened in the wilderness there in Exodus chapter 32 with the children of Israel and that golden idol. So just as this sermon series is titled The Church of the Golden Calf, you may wonder why did you you call it the Church of the Golden Calf? Thought we were talking about the children of Israel. Well, listen, any called out assembly to the Lord is considered a church. And so... I'm comparing what they did as an assembly of God to what is happening now as an assembly to the Lord Jesus, the New Testament church, and making a comparison of what they allowed in their lives and the idols that they allowed into their worship and what happened because of it. And you've heard that that, uh, phrase, history repeats itself. History has repeated itself over and over and over and over for thousands of years. And you look at the history of the children of Israel, and they always did the same thing. They'd come to God, they'd bow down to false idol, God would punish them, they would repent, they'd go back to God until they bowed down to false idol again, over and over and over and over and over and over and over. over. That's why they were finally scattered. That's why finally God, God gave them a strong delusion. God gave them where they're not even able to come to the Lord in, 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 the, in, a, in the way that we do. Uh, there will be a day when God will reveal himself and they'll understand the one that they pierced. And they will have to come to Jesus the same way that we do, by believing in the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so uh, oftentimes we may not even realize that we've allowed something to become an idol in our life or in our churches. Um, It can start out very simple, something as simple as the hymn book that you sing out of. We had a little fun here this morning at church. Um, I grew up with the, the red back church hymnal. I know it's the Church of God hymnal. Almost every church in this area that we live in, and in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, all southern churches really, Baptist churches, usually have the church hymnal. And we know, we realized it was written for the Church of God book, but it's got a lot of good songs in it. We love it. I was raised up on that hymn book. I've always said it's my very favorite hymn book. I know all the songs in it. I like how it's laid out, everything about it. I love it. We use it in our church. It's been used in every church I've ever been in in my, in my life. And so, uh, well, I take that back. There was one church we belonged to when I was a little kid. Uh, after 
my grandfather died. We left North Acres and went to Fairview. They didn't use that book, I don't believe. They used the Baptist hymnal only. However, all the other churches I've ever been involved in use the Redback Church hymnal. Now, I love that book. I like, we use it. I think it's one of the greatest there is. But should we take that book and make it to where if we can't have that book in our worship service, we're not going to have church. If you're going to take my red back church hymnal out of the church, I'm leaving. I am not going to participate in the choir if you're not singing out of the red back church hymnal. Now you think that sounds silly, but that happens. I've seen it with my own eyes. One church we were at, they decided they was going to take the red back church hymnal out. Boy, that didn't go over very well. Church split. <laughs> it happens, and it happened fast. And so what's happened is the Redback Church hymnal became a golden calf. It became more important to the people than the reason they were there. And that ought not to be. Churches split over the color of the carpet, over the padding that's in the pews, whether it's got padding or not padding, what color the padding is. Uh, all these things are golden calves. They're idols because they become more important to the members than, than the reason they're there in the worship of the Lord Jesus. Now, don't confuse preferences and opinions with convictions. They're totally different things. As I told you, I personally like the Redback Church email. I'm glad we have it. But we bought another... We actually use three different hymn books here in our church. We bought another hymn book because we would got them at a previous church, and I liked it. Songs and Hymns from the Heart. This is from, uh, in California, Jack Treber's uh, church, North Valley Publications. You can get these for about 11, 11 bucks, I believe, each. Not, not the spiral ones, they're 21, I believe. But the, the regular hymn books are about uh, 11 50 and we got them for the church. It's got most of the same songs our Redback Church hymnal has, plus a whole lot more. A lot of them that I really like. And I'll say this right now, I like it better than the Redback Church Hymnal. We use it almost every Sunday now. We only opened the Redback Church Hymnal this morning to see why one of the verses was different in this book than it was the one we were used to. And it was, what was that song, uh, How Beautiful Heaven Must Be? There was this, a verse that was different. Verse 3. And so uh, I'll just tell you, if, if, if that songbook becomes more important to us, and we can't worship because that we don't have it, it's become your golden calf. And it's an idol. And it don't need to be there. And so, preferences and opinions are based on feelings and emotions. Fleshly desires. It's always a selfish motive. Selfishly, I want the Redback Church hymnal in the church. Do I think that God ordained it to be in here? And I can't worship without it? No. Certainly not. But there's some people that that wouldn't even come to church that didn't have it. Now, um, when it comes to convictions, convictions, on the other hand, are based upon truths. They're based upon facts, and they must be derived from God's Word. Does God's Word mention the Redback Church hymnal? Certainly not. In fact, the Bible doesn't even talk about the New Testament church having music in it. That's for another subject altogether. But, Convictions derive from God's word. If God's word says it, then we should be that should be our conviction. And those things matter. Eternal security, it matters. The Bible says 
That, that if you call on the name of the Lord, thou shalt be saved. And it says your salvation is eternal and everlasting. That's, that's a conviction, and that's not going to change. The gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and being the only means of salvation for man, that cannot be changed. That is a conviction, a truth from the Bible. You can't say that it works any other way. You can only go to heaven and be in front of the Father if you go through Jesus Christ. You must be saved to be able to go to, to heaven. There's no other way around that. That's a conviction because that's what the Bible teaches. Yet there's people today that teach there's other ways to go to heaven. Surely Jesus isn't the only way. Well, he said he was. He said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man come to the Father but by me. That's a conviction. That's important. So if a church has a split over that, one half don't believe in eternal security and the other half does, well, that's a good reason to have a church split. That church, the people that don't believe in eternal security needs to go off and form them another church. <laughs> and let the people that's, that's, that believes in the truth from God's Word remain there. But don't mix up preferences, opinions, and convictions. They're, all, they're different things. And so we can find ourselves, before you know it, with a golden calf in our church. Like I said, it could be a songbook, it could be the color of the carpet. Anything you place between you and God and, and it causes a hindrance, it's your golden calf. It's an idol. And it needs to go. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you this morning thanking you so much for the message. Thank you for the great truth that's in your word. Lord, I pray that you will watch over us as a church. God, that will always follow exactly what you say. Lord, not put any kind of idols in front of you. And Lord, we just pray that you help those today that are, that are lost. Lord, those that need to be saved, would you convict their heart? Show them the need for salvation, Lord. Convict them. And Lord, may we do all we can do here in this, this world uh, to be a shining light. Thank you for all your blessings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I believe that that will be the last message out of this uh, little sermon series, Church of the Golden Calf. Uh, you never know. Uh, I thought last week's was, and then the Lord just kept working with me, and I just couldn't get away from it. Um, hopefully, next week, we'll get back into our Romans study. I believe we're in Romans chapter 8. I can't remember right off. It's been so long. Um, but we've got to get back into that study. And next Sunday, I believe, also is our homecoming. It'll be two years. We'll be celebrating... Uh, since the church was founded. And so the first first Sunday in September is the one we set aside for uh, our homecoming. Uh, I believe it, uh, we officially were uh, chartered in, in August, but I believe September is when I wrote down on our, our papers and uh, as our official date. So we will be doing that next Sunday. Due to COVID, we're not opening our home to, um, to the public. Uh, our family will be here. And so we're not going to put on the big uh, uh, thing that we did like last year with all the food. We're just going to have something small and celebrate what God's done, uh, being a enabling us to have this church, Porchlight Baptist Church, and uh, just looking forward to what he's going to do uh, in the future. All right. Are all hearts and minds clear this morning? And fear the Lord, we're separated.